Hello, my real estate queens. Welcome back to another episode. This one is a super, super important episode. If you never have listened to an episode before, this is the one. If you ever are thinking of becoming a landlord in San Francisco, renting out your place, doing Airbnb, short-term rentals, this is the episode you absolutely must listen to. I'm having an amazing conversation today with a real estate attorney in San Francisco who I have personally used on some some litigation I've had in the past on a house. And she gives such great advice. So to preface this, this is just an episode for knowledge and advice. But if you have if you're getting in a situation, then you absolutely need to have a consultation one on one because everybody's situation is different and you need to know. Before you ever think about entering this world, please have a consultation with a real estate attorney. That's why they're there. I'll leave all of her information in the show notes. Let's get into it. My name is Laura Campbell. I am an attorney. I work at Kaufman, Dolich, and Voluck, and I specialize in real estate law and more specifically in landlord-tenant law, although we are also growing um, several real estate-related practices like land use and, and other good stuff. But, but really, landlord-tenant is the, the bread and the butter today. Sounds good. Well, let's dive into it because I know it's a hot, juicy topic in San Francisco. I work with a lot of buyers who are under the impression that it is very simple to have tenants for a little while and to evict them. And they think it's just very simple. So I think that, I mean, I urge everybody before they write an offer on something like that to have a consultation with you or a real estate attorney. But this podcast is going to be about you just explaining tenant landlord rights. So why don't you just give us a rundown of like what tenant landlord rights are? And this is preface this. This is San Francisco, the city and county of San Francisco. I don't know what it's like anywhere else. Thanks for clarifying that. That's one of the first things I do too, is, you know, you across city boundaries and you've got a whole other playbook of rules. So, I mean, I think a lot of, you know, some general advice can apply everywhere in the Bay Area or California, like be careful and do your research. Uh, but yeah, the specifics of what I'll talk about will be um, very San Francisco localized. Uh, so where to begin? There's so much. Um, and, you know, you may think you know things, but you may not know everything. There's so much to know. We've got one of the most robust rent ordinances um, easily in the state and, and potentially in the country, or at least it's really up there. A lot of cities model their rent ordinances after San Francisco's, and a lot of times we're the first place to kind of try something new and wonky. Uh, so, I mean, you know, you phrased the question, I guess, like, maybe we'll, we'll start simple or broad and, and go kind of as specific as you think your listeners want to hear. Uh, but the very first thing that I think people, especially if they didn't grow up here or kind of unfamiliar with the landscape, is just this concept of um, like ending a tenancy or tenancies having set end times. That can be really foreign to people like me. I'm from North Carolina originally. When I came out here, I was like, what on earth is going on? Uh, but basically, there is almost no circumstance in San Francisco where you can guarantee that starting a tenancy, that it will end at a certain time. Um, we have handy things like lease terms, you know, most leases are a year, you can sign a lease that says it's six months, but that term ends up being sort of meaningless, because in San Francisco, you can't ask your tenant to leave, unless you have a just cause to evict them. And the end of a lease is not a just cause. 
So I just threw out kind of a few buzzwords there that we might want to unpack a little bit, again, if this is interesting or helpful to people. But that's sort of like the biggest misconception that I end up cleaning up. And that's one that has huge repercussions for people who thought, you know, I can be in control of this. I can make this really quick and easy. I can design a limited scope tenancy. Um, it, you really got to be familiar with surrendering that right, right up front. <laughs> so how was that for like an opening statement? Does that make sense so far? Yeah, that's huge. I think that's huge for people to know. So you can't end a tenancy just because it came done on your lease. You have to use the just causes. And now a just cause can't isn't that simple. So what are some just causes? Yeah, I mean, it's almost easier to talk about what are not just causes. Okay, um, But there's there's two big categories. And, you know, I'll just go ahead and say, like, I'm going to nip this in the bud because this is the second most common or this is like the most common follow up question I get which is like, well, what if my tenant, you know, pinky promised? What if I write it in the lease? What if I have my lease say, this lease is an exception to the San Francisco rent ordinance and it doesn't work. And if that could work, I would be the most popular lawyer in the city. Like we, there's just no, if you try to contract around these rules, they're going to be found void as against public policy. Like no court will honor them. So anyway, tough pill to swallow. But once we're in that universe, we're here. Um, but to your question of what some just causes are, you know, I like to categorize them mentally into two big buckets. One is your tenant is doing bad things, like bad behavior just causes. And then the other one are what we call no fault just causes. It's okay, the tenant's not doing anything bad, but you have a reason to evict them because uh, you want to move in is one of the most common ones, owner move-ins. Um, and then there's also the nasty, uh, or not nasty, but the intimidating Ellis Act, which we can talk about too. Um, but starting with fault evictions, you know, that's your tenant isn't paying rent. Uh, your tenant is breaching a material term of the lease and you've given them a cure notice and they haven't cured it. Uh, and then we've got like nuisance and illegal activity, but things that have to be pretty bad. Um, and I talk about those four topics right off the bat, because what you won't hear me say again is like the end of a lease term. That's not a just cause. Um, and then another huge one that's very disappointing to a lot of, of people out there selling your property is also not a just cause. You can't ask your tenant to leave just because you want to sell and you want to sell it vacant. So that usually comes as, as bad news to a lot of people. That's huge. Um, but it's also just not that simple. It's like your tenant hasn't paid rent for a month or two. It's not like, oh, okay, bye. You have to still like hire an attorney for all of these things, right? Yes, yes, I know. More and more and more bad news. It is not at all simple. <laughs> and the number one thing you can do in San Francisco to get in trouble, I guess, besides, you know, telling your tenant they have to leave when they don't, is resorting to self-help, doing something like changing the locks or like, heaven forbid, you know, turning off the electricity or the heat. Hopefully none of your listeners would like think that that was okay to begin with. But, you know, obviously... You've got to go through a lot of legal hoops. Um, you Even for non-pays, you know, there may have been a time like a few years ago where you could kind of DIY, do it yourself. But I really, and I, I know I'm self-interested here, but still, I really, really recommend getting a lawyer if you're going to serve any kind of legal notice, which incurs a, a notice to pay rent or a notice to cure a breach of lease or quit. Um, because you want your notice to be absolutely perfect if it's going to stand up in court. Can't be a letter out of place. Absolutely. Uh, because tenants get free representation a lot of the time. So tenants don't really, there's no skin off their back, but as a landlord, we have to pay for our representation. Um, and also, if you are thinking of selling the place, everything has to be disclosed. And if you don't do it properly, then it rolls over to the other owner. And then you could get sued as a tenant, as a landlord. Exactly. So you've really honed into this uneven risk that really begins right from the beginning. And, you know, on top of that, people kind of, I 
I hear people use colloquially terms like technicalities and like strict compliance and and that applies too. So the tenant that you may or may not be trying to evict or you know the tenant that you're working on here, they're going to get a free attorney and that free attorney's job is just to delay as much as possible. So your tenant might owe thousands of dollars in rent. You might be perfectly justified, you know, morally, ethically in starting your eviction. But if you spell a word wrong on your notice, your tenant's going to have a free attorney who can uh, get probably the whole thing kicked out of court in a heartbeat. Um, and then you got to start all over from scratch and you've lost time and you've lost money. So that is something where you just want to get it right the first time, you know? This is bringing up so many bad memories for me. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Gosh, I I worked with Laura and her partners on... Um, a situation when I bought my house and the tenants before that were wrongly evicted and we had to deal with it. But I digress. I'll yes. get to that in another episode. Oh, no, I love talking about disclosure. I mean, yeah, that's it's a, your case was a really fascinating case of someone sort of saying something within the, the conversational meaning of it and not realizing the legal impacts it has. But yeah. And also, you have to make sure that the person that you're actually suing and hoping to get money from has money because if they don't have yes. money, everything was for nothing. Exactly, which is it's a funny thing because a lot of my clients say, "All right, all right, well they're going to get a free attorney, but my lease says that I get attorney's fees if I win." And you know that it may say that that may be well and good, but it may be another thing entirely after you you win your case, trying to hunt down that tenant and actually collect on. Yeah, and and my... I'm a lawyer who practices a lot of law, but I don't go hunting for money. I don't do collections. I no. <laughs> So in my case, we won the case over the last seller. We had to hire a collections attorney and we found out that the person was bankrupt and they didn't have any money. So it's basically oh. anyway. Anyway. OK, so what creates a tenancy? Oh, beautiful question. It's not always what you think, you know, a written lease. That'll do it for sure. Um, but really, it can be any any situation where you're letting a person live in your house in exchange for the legal word is consideration, but I'll break that down to be more understandable, like pretty much anything that kind of has a value or equates to money. So, I mean, that's kind of the scary thing. It doesn't even have to be money. You know, it can be, they give me a pound of cashews once a month in order to live here. <laughs> it's an exchange of something valuable in order to allow someone to live at your property. Uh, I just of cases in the city where tenants don't have written leases and that really confuses people um but it, it, the answer to it all ends up being kind of more simple than you know people always think it is like I, people ask me all the time oh can i evict them because they don't have a written lease no of oh. course not mm -mm. um and then well then what are what are the terms of the tenancy if we don't have a written lease and, and the terms get sort of gap filled by local law and by also the habit and practices of the parties um, is, that, is this going in the direction you meant by what starts a tenancy? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Any direction that you take it is what we need to hear. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the issues I see. Sometimes people get confused, A, about like family members and sweetheart deals. And B, people get confused with like short-term rentals and Airbnbs. So so maybe I'll address those two kind of quickly if that's helpful. Maybe starting with Airbnb. We're going to talk. Yeah, we're going to talk about that later. Yeah, we will. I definitely want to get to that for sure. <laughs> Excellent. Well, so here's here's a classic case. You let your brother-in-law crash at your house and you say, no, 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 don't worry about it. You're going through hard times. You can stay for free. And then it's time for him to leave and he won't leave. If you're in that scenario, you actually, if he has never paid you a dime, he's never paid utilities, he's never bought you groceries, you do not have a tenant. You have a licensee 
And you're actually in a slightly easier position to start legal proceedings to get him out. You still can't change the locks on him. You still can't do any kind of self-help. And you still have to go through some obnoxious legal hoops. But you do not have a rent-controlled, eviction-controlled tenant the way you might otherwise. Now, if you have your brother-in-law crashing on your couch and you get so sick of him and you say, you know what, it's time for you to contribute to this household. Write me a check for $500. Out of, you know, you, you say that out of irritation. Well, now you've got a $500 a month rent-controlled, <laughs> eviction-controlled tenant, potentially, depending on your property. So sometimes, you know, sometimes people kind of resort to things they think are going to make the situation better that actually make it worse. So I think if you are ever getting anywhere remotely sticky, you know, always call your lawyer first. So I guess a tenancy is legally started when there's an exchange of currency and doesn't it have to be longer than 30 days? It does. And that's where we start getting into short term rental rules. Um, You know, there's no there's no magic loophole. It's going to be a recurring theme when you talk about San Francisco law. So I, I think that this is academically kind of important just for people to know from the get go when we start talking about it. If someone has stayed somewhere 30 days or more, they fall under the San Francisco rent ordinance. If somebody is staying somewhere less than 30 days, they fall under Chapter 41A of the Planning Code. It, it's a different provision, and it talks about short-term rentals. So it's if you have someone, if you're like having people stay with you and they're always staying less than 30 days, that doesn't mean you're not subject to any law. You're just subject to different law than the rent ordinance, and it's got its own kind of pack of crazy rules too. <laughs> well, then I guess let's talk about Airbnb. Yeah. Like I was just, I'm just selling a house. We took offers yesterday. It's a house with a legal Ooh. cottage in the back. So it's like a duplex. And Love I it. get the question all the time at the open house. So can I Airbnb this? And I'm like, have you spoken with an attorney? So let's <laughs> unpack that. We mean, what is How can you Airbnb your house if it doesn't have an in-law? And then if it does have an in-law, like, let's get into all that. It's, it's a lot tougher than a lot of people think it is. I mean, always talk to your lawyer before you make a purchase. I've had a lot of very, like, bummer phone calls for people who bought a property assuming they can Airbnb it and getting bad news from me. Yeah. Uh, first of all, the number one thing is that you are only supposed to – I use the term Airbnb and short-term rent interchangeably. I hope that doesn't become confusing. You can let me know if it does. But basically, you're only supposed to Airbnb the place that you yourself principally live in. So, you know, the the plan of buying a duplex, it doesn't really always work unless you've got kind of other owners or family members or you're you're doing something sort of with that. Um, On top of that, the other biggest thing is that you're not supposed to host, uh, well, you're not supposed to do, they they call it hosted versus unhosted. And it's sort of like if you're home for the stay or not, if you're like sharing a kitchen and eating breakfast with your person or not. You're not supposed to do more than 90 unhosted nights a year. And a lot of people... The joy of Airbnb is that they're out or they're traveling or they're gone and they don't have to interact with this person. And they you know, want to do that for like six months out of the year. And so that immediately doesn't really work for them. And they learn, oh, these have to be stays where I'm like, you know, sharing coffee with the with the guest in the morning. That's not quite as appealing to me. But there are some San Francisco properties I personally think that work really great for it. You know, we've you've probably seen so many of these like unique kind of funky properties that really do have sort of private areas within them or, or ways where it would be a great for a guest to stay on that lower level for a while. Like there, there are some ways that it works really well, but it might not be the property you think it is for Airbnb. So also if it's less than 30 days where they don't have tenants rights, then it has to be your primary residence. But if you let them stay longer than 30 days, it doesn't have to be your primary residence, but then they have tenants rights. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And you just, I mean, you just landed on something that a lot of people figure out and like playing around with. And and that can be a really successful thing to do. It's a funny little principle, right? 
So if you, even if it's, and maybe this is the importance of using terms like Airbnb and short-term rentals differently, but if you book someone from the Airbnb website, but they book a stay with you that is 60 days or 35 days, they technically are not a short-term renter. You don't have to abide by all those rules I was talking about, principal place of residence, but they are technically an eviction-controlled tenant, maybe even a rent-controlled tenant. Like they might be rent-controlled at the rate that the Airbnb listing is at. It depends on your property. Uh, and so that is, that's a risk that some people take happily and that's fine. You know, sometimes Airbnb prices are sort of hyperinflated. Mm -hmm. And so when I tell people, okay, you booked this guy for 60 days on Airbnb, that's fine. How do you feel if he doesn't leave after 60 days, but keeps paying that? And some people are like, oh no, 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 he's got to get out after 60 days. That's my house. And other people are like, hey, if he stays, but he keeps paying me that, that's totally fine too. Right. Uh, but the key thing to know is that when day 61 shows up, you can't tell him, okay, your stay's up. You got to get out. You got to just hope that they decide to get out. <laughs> that makes sense? Absolutely. I mean, this is San Francisco. Pretty much tenants have all the rights. If you decide to <laughs> become a landlord, rent your place out short term, long term, you have to know that you're pretty much surrendering your house. So maybe some ways to go around that is having setting a high rent. Are there restrictions on how high of a rent you can set not not exactly not when there's a vacancy we currently have something that uh, a lot of uh that they keep threatening to take away in different you know elections and, and different laws uh, called vacancy control decontrol so the concept that when your place is naturally vacant and you pick your next tenant you're pretty much allowed to set the rent however high you'd like and maybe this is an entirely different podcast topic altogether but you know a lot of people think that's part of why rents are so high out here right is that if you every time you're picking out a tenant, you're possibly picking out a tenant for as long as that tenant lives, right? Then you're going to set the rent as high as you think you can possibly set it, right? Absolutely. San Francisco needs to figure their stuff out. If they don't want super high rents, then relax a little bit on the tenant rights. Yeah. I mean, I think it might be worth a caveat. This is my lawyer, like self-protection brain mode. I, I should mention there are certain funky scenarios where you might be limited in what rent you can set. You know, if you've got a building that has restrictions, tethered to it like if you've done an ellis act in the past 10 years or something you know there's always situations where you might not not have vacancy control but the general rule of thumb is yes you can set it as high as you'd like let's talk about ellis act Ooh, jumping right in let's talk about that what is it first of all yeah the ellis act is the is a no fault just cause to evict i mean it's an act that allows what it is on its face like if you if you pull up the legislation and you read the ellis act the Ellis Act exists to allow landlords to go out of the landlord business. You know, as eviction control policies became more popular throughout the state of California, a lot of landlords said, okay, well, I can't evict my tenant willy-nilly. I get that. But gosh, what if I just don't want to be a landlord anymore? What am, what am I supposed to do? There's got to be a way out. And so the state of California's solution to this problem was to say, all right, under the Ellis Act, a landlord is allowed to say, I don't want to be a landlord anymore and to terminate the tenancies of every tenancy in a given building if in exchange that landlord does certain things that are kind of in keeping with going out of business. Um, if a landlord exercises their rights under the Ellis Act, they cannot turn around and rent it out to new people, at least for basically five to 10 years. So a series of restrictions attached to a property that you do an Ellis Act on. So um, let's do it. If it's okay with you, and if this isn't too boring, let's do maybe a little like hypothetical scenario to kind of illustrate it. Let's do it. Um, if I've got a, and this is the first kind of problem that comes up. If I have a two unit building, love one of my tenants, hate the other tenant, and I think, okay, well, why don't I just Ellis Act out the one that I hate? 
you can't pick and choose. You have to do an entire building or not an entire building. So if I want to do an Ellis Act on that building, I have to tell all the tenants they got to get out. Second thing, once you serve an Ellis Act notice, those tenants will get at least 180 days and realistically a year. Um, if any tenant has any kind of disability or is elderly, they get to extend the notice period to a year. And in my experience, they will always, always, always extend it. So I say just anticipate one year. They'll get a year's time and they will get a statutory relocation payment from the landlord to help them relocate. So you basically um, got to pay them out. Yeah, you, you pay them out. Exactly. And then, uh, you know, the, your tenant may or may not actually leave. You may or may not have to litigate against that tenant. And we can talk all about all the fun of litigating an eviction and what that looks like. Uh, but then past that, say, OK, now you've got your empty property. Now you have a series of rules that apply to that property spread out over 10 years, and they kind of change every year to make it really complicated. So basically, for the first five years, you're not supposed to re-rent it. If you do re-rent it for some reason, you got to offer it back to the old tenants, and you have to offer it back at their old rate. And then if they don't take it, you still, for the first five years at least, you still have to rent it at only the amount of rent you were asking those old tenants. Uh, years five through 10, the restrictions lessen, but they're still there. You basically have to offer it back to the original tenants, but you can offer it at market rate. Um, that was a lot of information really fast. And that's because, you know, really, if you're if you're really serious about doing the Ellis Act, you should probably not only get your information from this podcast, you should probably have a consult with a lawyer to really, really go through it. No, but hopefully awesome. that gives you an idea of like, you know, it's not something you just quickly pull the trigger on overnight and then you can do whatever you want. Right. Like it's it's an onerous thing with a lot of restrictions on the property. My dear listeners, if you're thinking about any of this, this is not your consultation. I can give you Laura's number. Okay, so your Ellis Act is different than owner move and eviction. We'll talk about that. But also Ellis Act will stay with the building, right? For And you can't do it again for a while, that, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, a funny thing is you can, you can do it again if you mess up the first one, but uh, heaven help you. Uh, yeah, it's it, what you can't do is undo it, right? If you, this is a big deal too that clients don't always know. If you serve an Ellis Act notice, and then you change your mind, or your tenant says, "Oh, I would, I would have been happy to leave. I'll just leave," you can't run to the city and say, "Wait, wait, wait! I don't want the Ellis Act restrictions anymore. My tenant decided to go, or I, or I like my tenant. I want to let them stay." If you serve it, it's called a notice of constraints, and it automatically attaches to the property for those next ten years, and it's extremely difficult to get those constraints removed. Um, and it's impossible to get them removed if any of your tenants leave. You have to let your tenants stay in order to undo those restrictions. So the landlord does an Ellis Act. Tenants move out. He sells the property. The new owner inherits that Ellis Act, correct? Yes, that's exactly right. They step right into the shoes of the last owner. If they want to rent out the unit, they have to offer it back to the tenants or they have to be limited to the amount of rent they can get. You don't get out of it via the sale. That is so funny. Like rental restrictions and all these laws don't go with the landlord. When they leave, they stay with the property. Exactly. Yeah. Well, okay. it's a, you know, it's a funny thing that we make it work. It still sometimes makes sense and sometimes it doesn't. Right. Like if I'm playing not devil's advocate, but tenant's advocate, you know, you don't want someone saying, OK, well, I'm going to sell it to my sister or, you know, and then my sister's going to sell it right back to me. Like you don't want people to skirt the rules that way. Um, but then at the same time, sometimes we're okay Ellising a you know a building and then selling it because we're going to sell it to someone who wants to live there and they don't mind not re-renting it. They're buying it because they want to live there. So right. you know it fits different scenarios in different ways. Absolutely, but you still have to disclose it. So now let's talk about oh, owner yeah. move and eviction. <laughs> sure, sure. Owner move and evictions are funny. They 
used to be so much easier than an Ellis Act, uh, but the city has been over the years kind of adding more and more strings to it to the point where they're looking kind of more and more similar. Um, owner move and eviction is, although there's some big differences that I'll talk about now. <laughs> owner move and eviction is only a 60 day notice for starters, unless anyone in the building is a school teacher or child age student. And then this is kind of a weird thing. Instead of it be, if that's the case, if there's someone in there that's a teacher or a student aged child, instead of it just expiring in 60 days or in a set amount of time, it cannot expire until basically the summer. Like it has to expire sometime between June and September, whatever the official um, SF USD calendar days are that year. So 60 days becomes sort of a, a minimum, but not a maximum. Like it is, it's now June. Um, if I served a 60 day notice now, but there's a teacher, that notice will fail because it would end in the middle of the spring school term. Um, but I could serve a notice today and have it expire on like June 30th or whatever days in the middle of summer and safe. Uh, that's the notice amount of time. I kind of went a little bit deep into that. Let me back up a little bit. Um, owner movement eviction notices, They you also have to pay statutory payments to the tenants, um, like an Ellis Act, they're fairly similar. And then instead of having this 10 years of re-rental restrictions, basically what it is, is that you have to move into the building within three months of getting it back. And you have to live there as your principal place of residence for 36 months, which is three years. And during those three years, you have to file reports at the rent board showing your homeowner's insurance and your driver's license and all this good stuff proving you live there. Uh, years four and five, you're not allowed to rent it out unless you offer it back to the original tenants, but you don't necessarily have to live there the way you do for those first three years. And if you get caught not living there, which my clients would never do because my clients are honest people who will move in and live there, hmm. uh, then you will get sued by your former tenant. What if the person sells? Does the owner moon eviction stay with the property and that goes to the next owner? It does. It gets a little dicey. And, you know, some of these things haven't fully been tested as much litigation as we have going on in the city. You know, we don't always get clean. Like we, we don't always know what would happen in certain scenarios. Hypothetically, you're really supposed to truly live there for 36 months yourself. Mm -hmm. And so if you sell it before the 36 months are over, you know, I think a new seller should probably live there to protect themselves. Uh, but I think that former owner might have some risk, um, you know, unless they have a really good reason for why they didn't. Um, and to kind of, at the risk of getting too nuanced here, you know, when you're doing an owner move and eviction, the, the rent ordinance understands that, like, who knows what the future holds. You could you could pass away in 36 months, right? But you're supposed to have the present intent that you're supposed to truly intend to live there. So if something happens that was unexpected, you know, maybe you won't get sued or maybe it's not a good case because you did intend and then something changed. Uh, but if you do an owner move in, you live there one month and then you sell it for no reason whatsoever. I think that's kind of asking for a lawsuit because it looks like you didn't have that good faith intent to truly live there the whole time. Is uh, just a regular tenant buyout a thing? Let's say there's no just cause or you don't want to move in. You don't want to get out of the business. You just want them to leave. Can you negotiate that? Absolutely. It's a very, very big thing. And it's a lot of what people in my office and all around the city do. Um, so but it's a thing in the way that uh, it's not just a, a handshake and exchange of money. It has a lot of paperwork involved and a lot of weird rules people also don't know about. So if you even want to have a conversation with your tenants about them moving out, um, which sometimes you want to do before you do an owner move in eviction or an Ellis, like this comes up in a hundred different ways. Or if you're just selling and you just want to know how long your tenant plans to live there or something like that, you need to first 
file certain paperwork. Um, there's a piece of paper that you give the tenants that tells them all about their rights. And then there's a piece of paper you file at the rent board that promises the rent board you gave the tenant the paper you're supposed to give them. So two-step process. It's a process and it's one people routinely skip because they just don't know about it. And it's weird to anticipate a conversation, right? Like, you know, I get clients sometimes who are like, my tenant came up to me and asked me about buyout. I was supposed to plug my ears and like run away until I get a piece of paper. You know, and we just do the best we can. Uh, but yeah, there's paperwork that goes up front. Um, then you can, you know, negotiate, bargain with your tenant as much as you want. And if and when you reach a deal, uh, which can vary wildly, there's certain language and certain fonts and very specific things to include in a written summation of the buyout agreement that also gets filed at the rent board. Um, and then just while I'm shooting from the hip on buyouts in general, I think the biggest question I get is, you know, is there a specific amount buyouts have to be for? And the answer is absolutely not. You know, a buyout can be a penny. A buyout could, it's never been this high, but there could be a billion dollar buyout. Um, a buyout can also be like free rent for a month or a buyout can be, I will reimburse your mover costs. Um, it, it can be anything. And it really, it emphasizes that it just, you know, sometimes we do buyouts with people who just moved in and are, are paying market rent. And it's, it's just kind of friendly and low stakes. And sometimes people hear the word buyout and they think, oh, am I getting tens of thousands of dollars? And it's like, no, 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 we're just, you know, it's, it's small potatoes. On the other hand, you know, I'm sure you've probably seen the headlines about like several hundred thousand dollar buyouts that happen sometimes in the city under certain circumstances. Absolutely. It's almost really worth it to be a tenant because why <laughs> would you ever leave just on your own accord? Even if you were planning on leaving, you would, I would still ask for a buyout. Yeah, maybe. My colleagues and I joke about that sometimes, but you know, I mean, I don't know if I, I think uh, I would be interesting to it would be interesting to see statistics linking up, you know, kind of the concept of a tenancy as an asset and how it appreciates over time versus owning your own property and building equity and, and all that good stuff. But, but yeah, no, I mean, if you're if you're a tenant um, and, you know, there can certainly be ways that you can spin your situation to um, to make it more advantageous for yourself. And I don't necessarily even think that that's wrong or evil in all situations, you know. <laughs> So I want to get into like the different rules between homes and condos and TIC. Ooh, That's a yes. big one. Yeah, it, it's it's big in the city of San Francisco. It's almost, I, I maybe you would know this about it. I would, I would, or maybe how many buildings are multi-unit versus just single family homes. Um, but yeah, huge conversation topic. And the words get used interchangeably in a way that can be kind of confusing. Uh, but when we talk about it for like rent control and eviction control purposes, a single family house is really only as truly a single family house if it is like absolutely a single family house. No in-laws, no ADUs, no secret kitchens or hot plates in the basement. You know, very truly one unit. Um, single family homes are exempt from rent control. Uh, we started off this podcast talking immediately about like evictions and just cause, but I didn't really do the thing I usually do, which is divide up the concepts of you know, some units, all units are eviction controlled in San Francisco. Only some are rent controlled. And that means that some units, you can't ask the tenant to leave, but you can give them rent increases to whatever market value is periodically. And so that's, that's nice for some people, right? Um, single family homes are one of those. Single family homes, you can increase the rent, sort of keep it up with market as you go. Condos, if they have been sold to a bona fide purchaser for value, sorry to make things complicated, but like condos with a small asterisk, are also exempt from rent control, which can be a really good big deal for people. Um, and gosh, it's just such a big topic. I'm trying to think about how to present that most smoothly. But like if anytime you have a multi-unit building, 
and there's different owners, like not just one person owning all the units, you either, you almost certainly are either going to have a type of ownership where you guys co-own condos, like you've formally converted the units into condos, or if you haven't gone through the formal condo conversion process, it's usually what's called a TIC ownership, um, which is a little bit less formal and the units are not exempt from rent control. Uh, but you can still have a lot of freedom to be like, this is my unit, this one's yours. Uh, but it hasn't it hasn't been recognized by the city as being individual condos. So that sort of makes sense. I can try to tackle that from a different direction to yeah. break up the difference. Yeah, that makes sense. So a single family home that does have a legal in-law or ADU. So that's interesting because when I sell a single family home with an in-law, the kitchen downstairs can have a permit, but when I pull up the property records, it says single family home, not duplex. So like, how does the city even distinguish between if that's legal or not? They're just like, oh, you have a kitchen, it's a duplex, you have rent control and eviction control. If you were confused by seeing one piece of paper say single family house and another one say something different, the key to understanding it all is realizing that different city agencies and entities have different definitions. So it, it, it's frustrating and it's confusing, but that's the source of the confusion. What me, what a single family home is to the planning department is not what a single family home is to the rent board. And when I'm talking about rent control, I only care about the rent board. And the rent board doesn't care if your three-hour report says single family home. You're, the rent board just cares about how many kitchens you have. So you know, there, if you're confused, it might just be that there's a confusing answer that you got to talk to your realtor or your attorney about. Don't just assume because you have one piece of paper that says single family house, it's truly a single family house. If the rent board thinks it's unofficially divided up, they're going to slap you with rent control. That makes sense? Absolutely. I think we covered a lot today in this episode. I guess the moral of the story is if you're thinking of potentially being a landlord, have a consultation with a San Francisco or wherever you are, real estate attorney, and know that if you get into the situation, you might not be able to get out. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good single takeaway. Thank you so, so much for having me. And thanks for your patience with the technical difficulty. So such a pleasure chatting with you about this stuff. I could go on endlessly. <laughs> Thank you so much, Laura. I'll put all of your information in the notes. So if anybody wants to reach out, um, there you go. Thank you, Laura. Fantastic. Take care. Bye.